Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Weinstein. Let me welcome you back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. Today on the program, I am talking with Colonel Retired Greg Thompson, who is an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Cedarville University. After a stellar career in the Air Force JAG Corps that began in 2003 at Shepard Air Force Base in Texas and concluded in June of 2023 at Hickam Air Force Base in Honolulu, Colonel Thompson joined the faculty in July. In between, he served as a JAG at bases in Tucson, Montgomery, Alabama, Knob Noster, Missouri, and Honolulu. Today, he's traded the military courtroom for a Cedarville classroom, and as he describes it, he's in his freshman year of teaching college students at Cedarville. Let's go to my conversation now with Colonel Greg Thompson on the Cedarville Stories podcast. I just briefly outlined your amazing military career. So let me begin by thanking you for your service to our country. And we'll talk at length about your experiences in the military throughout the program. But for starters, I'm interested in knowing how the Lord directed you to Cedarville University. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. And thanks for inviting me uh, onto the podcast. The Lord very clearly called my family to Cedarville University in a pretty amazing way. Um, we were getting ready to retire from the Air Force, and I really loved my time teaching at the Air Force Academy, which I had an opportunity to do um, in the Air Force for three years. And I knew I, I would want to work in a place where I could share my faith. Um, and I knew there were probably only a handful of places that would need a lawyer <laughs> um, to teach those things. And it's just really interesting um, because God through some other circumstances, drew my attention to Cedarville University. So I submitted an application. And from there, uh, my wife laughs sometimes. She said, she says, did they create this position just for you? And I said, no, God did. It's so much better than that. That's a great (laughs) answer. And so I know your story a little bit. So at the time that you were filling out this application, you guys were living in Hawaii. Yes. Now you're living in Ohio. How do you like this colder weather? <laughs> well, so far I've loved it. I'm I'm ready for the winter. Um, since we have served in Missouri and Colorado, I have some experience, but we've spent six of our last eight years in Hawaii. So my family uh, is not as prepared as we ought to be, but we will get there. We it's, will get there. It's coming soon too. <laughs> so um, as I read your profile, Greg, uh, you highlighted, in fact, you just mentioned that you taught uh, at the United States Air Force Academy. You did that for three years. Yes. Did that experience really, uh, what I'll say, impact your interest in teaching in college? Yes. Um, my dad is a uh, professor, and so and my mom was a school teacher growing up. Uh, my dad became a professor later on in his life. But I was inspired by them and how much they enjoyed teaching. And then being able to teach at the Air Force Academy, I had a wonderful time. Um, I got to coach the mock trial team there at okay, the Air and you Force could, Academy. And you can do it here. Mm-hmm. And we're starting a team here uh, at Cedarville. In fact, we're competing this weekend. I'm, it's our very first competition. I'm very excited. Ever. Ever. I think, as far as I know. You're ever. the inaugural coach. I love teaching at the Air Force Academy. I just love the opportunity uh, to mentor so many cadets and uh, be involved in their lives. So I was involved in a program called Officer Christian Fellowship. So I had an opportunity to share some spiritual matters with uh, cadets as well, which I love. So Greg, in that same profile that I just mentioned, you, you listed that you were a Bible study fellowship, international teacher, teaching leader, and that your faith in Jesus is central to who you are as a person, yes. an educator and a lawyer. 
Can you share with us your faith journey that brought you to Christ? Sure. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and probably when I was around eight years old, uh, I accepted Christ as my Savior. Uh, and then as I kind of grew up, went to college, I kind of, I definitely drifted away. Um, but God, through his just sovereign sovereignty and love for me, brought me back into some unique situations. And right about when I graduated law school, he became Lord of my life again. And I'm so thankful. That's an interesting thing that happened to me because at that point, you know, I had a lot of questions like, here, I'm a lawyer and now I'm following God. How's this going to work? And so I look back and can see uh, God um, just so gracious and kind to me. How did you see him work? Well, in the legal career, I didn't always work around Christians. And so I think my light was able to shine in kind of special ways at times. There's so many stories I could share, but um, clearly God had a plan for me in this career field, and I'm thankful for that. According to recent data that I at least found in preparing for today's program, I learned that there are more than 1,300 active duty military attorneys, or JAGs, mm-hmm. who serve as commissioned officers in the Air Force. Growing up, I re- remember my friend saying, I want to be a firefighter or a police officer or a professional baseball player. When did you become interested in really becoming a military lawyer? How did that interest develop? Okay, two parts to that. First, my interest in being a lawyer. And this is important because I get excited for our students. I became interested in being a lawyer from doing mock trial in high school because I had um, mentors that would watch me compete and they would instill in me, hey, you're not bad at this. You might be able to make a career of this. So <laughs> I had that going. The military part, I had no interest in. I um, graduated from law school from the University of Arizona. I got a job working for a judge for a year. I was a prosecutor for three years in my hometown of Tucson, Arizona. And then September 11th happened. And to me, I wanted to serve my country. My dad had served in the army for a short time, uh, but I never really was interested. But after September 11th, I want to do something for my, to, to serve my country in some way. I remember that was the day I had my very first felony jury trial. I've been trying misdemeanor trials. We ended up offering a guilty plea given this, given the situation. Um, I tried to give blood in the afternoon since I was then free. The line was too long. So I applied to the Air Force JAG Corps. (laughs) Really? Is (laughs) that really true? That's true. Wow. So I want to go back to, you know, your, your interest in being a lawyer. What does it take to be a, not just a lawyer, but a good lawyer? Is it someone who can retain facts and speak well, or what, what is it? What are the, what are the core uh, components of a good lawyer? Wow, that's a great question. Well, it might depend a bit on what discipline you work in, but I would say, generally speaking, being uh, a person of courage and integrity, and also someone who's a who's a voracious reader, a learner. I'm often having to learn about entirely new career fields. Like even in the Air Force, I defend I've defended a pilot who they're looking to take his wings. Well, I had to learn all about flying. Um, not all about it, but you know, enough to be able to, yeah. uh, defend them. Or if I'm no matter the case, I'm always learning new things. So being a learner, critical thinker and being, I tell my class this a lot. I'm a lawyer. I have a lot of questions. When you say that you had to learn everything, is, does that mean you personally had to learn everything or do you have a team around you that helped you collect the research so you, you could determine more information? It depends. Um, Sometimes you have access to an expert, an expert witness, or in the Air Force for that 
instance I, I was mentioning, a, a flying evaluation board would be what it was called. I was assigned a pilot to help me okay. understand terms and navigate. and um, Or I might have a criminal case where I have an expert witness in some type of forensic area sure. that then helps advise me about whatever it is, psychology or uh, DNA evidence or whatever it may be. Yeah. So you're not necessarily flying alone in the courtroom. You're, you have some help with you. I have some, but often it's personal research that I'm doing as uh, well. That's very time in- intensive then. Yes. And, and I think also, and just talking to you and preparing for this is being a person who's willing to find the right person to ask the right questions to and listen carefully. That's yeah. important. So to rise to the level of Colonel, you have to be educated, excellent in your craft. You've earned degrees at the Air War College at Maxwell Air Force Base. You earned a, ma- a bachelor's degree in business administration from the University of Arizona, a master's degree in operational art and science from the Air University and Air Command and Staff College. That's a lot of education. But then you went on for your Juris Doctorate from the University of uh, Arizona College of Law. Do you recall lessons from all that education that you have gone through, and probably even now in your classroom, that were pivotal in your successful career? As I look back, I remember one time working in the military, and I thought, wow, I don't think I ever had any training in many of the things that I'm doing now. I mean, in law school, we didn't have like a military law class. We didn't have a national security class that I took. I'm sure they exist now. Yeah, Uh, Maybe they existed then and I just didn't take them. Um, (laughs) I should have. And so I look back and I was prepared because of the mentors. I think watching my teachers and mentors, how they thought through problems, how they taught me, how in-depth they were. And also challenging me to think through problems. And much of law school or even any advanced learning is the critical thinking aspect, really um, being able to take problems and look for different solutions is really important. And, and so that prepared me because in the end, I would tell the lawyers here at the end of my career, I would tell them, um, I remember one lawyer calling me in panic. Uh, really? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, when I was at uh, Pacific Air Forces recently. Uh, and I, I went over and, and talked to the lawyer and said, I, I don't know the answers immediately off the top of my head to all the questions. And these are serious national security questions, but we can find them together and we can search for them and we can look it up and we can, um, and some of the questions are novel and just right. understand that never a reason to panic. Um, we just got to do the work and the research. As long as you're prepared, there's no reason to panic, right? <laughs> right. Being prepared, there's no substitute for that. There but, isn't. But a lot of preparation is just understanding there are times that there are no easily obtainable answers, but there are a lot of options that you can present the military to a commander and then give rationale for why this might be a possible right. option or yeah. that. I hope that explains how I was yeah. prepared in school. Yeah, and I think, and you alluded to it, that um, maybe the best education is real-life work. And, and I say that because, for me, you know, I, I don't claim to be very good at what I do, but <laughs> I only had one PR course in my college career. It was a theory course. I mean, the best learning ground for me has been to do the job and learn while I'm doing it. And you kind of alluded to, you didn't, you didn't necessarily have any military law classes, but you've been in that world, so you've learned yeah. On the job. I should say the lawyer uh, didn't panic. I might have overstated that, but it was obviously like, you know, these are new things and it can be challenging. 
uh, for anyone to face a new thing, but, but relying on your training and experiences. And, and that's a military thing. We train all the time so that when there is a crisis, we just revert to our training. Like any good athletics team, I think, yeah. does that as well. But also as a believer, you have the Lord to cling to. Well, that's, I would say there are many times that I just begin whatever issue came up with just a prayer, whether I had time for short or right. long. Um, so important to me personally yeah. to do that. So you've had a great military career. We've talked a little bit about it. Now you're in the classroom here at Cedarville University. How do you try to incorporate all that you've experienced in the military, in the classroom to teach your students today? It's really fun for me because I have, usually I have uh, really good examples of the material from real life. And so I'm able to share those. Often as the military is kind of predictable, I have some military stories I share. My three years as a civilian attorney actually is where a lot of stories come from. Really? Because, well, because in the civilian world, you just get a little different variety of, of people and right. different walks of life than you do in the military. But I have lots of uh, unique examples that I can share with the class, some serious, some humorous, that I hope stick with them and they can remember some of the principles. How do they respond when you are given an example, civilian court or, or military court? I think almost sometimes I won't have to ask them, but I think sometimes they're like, is this, did this really happen? Cause some of them are pretty, pretty strange stories or funny. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have a lot of them. So I think sometimes they're like, are these all real? I'm like, yeah. these are all real stories. Yeah. When I, when I hear you say that my mind goes to, uh, any student interested in studying criminal justice should automatically look at Cedarville because when I think of when I when, <laughs> yes. when I think of what you provide with your background, I think of Steve Meacham and his thirty plus years as yes. a New York State investigator. I think of Dr. Patrick Oliver, former chief of police in Cleveland and two other cities. Mm -hmm. I mean, you three bring real world experience that may be unmatched in Christian higher education. Do you think that's a fair statement? I love our our uh, criminal justice department, and I love how you said that because. With me, as a, I've been a criminal prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney, it, defense in the Air Force, prosecutor in both the Air Force okay. and, um, and as a county attorney in Tucson, Arizona. But having uh, Professor Meacham, who's an investigator right. and a wonderful one, and then having uh, Dr. Oliver, chief of police, I mean, we really have a pretty, pretty interesting team that can come at that topic from some different uh, perspectives with a lot of experience. So it's right. wonderful. Yeah. So you've been teaching in the classroom, not quite a full semester no. here at Cedarville. <laughs> How do you see the students at Cedarville compared to the students of the Air Force Academy? Well, I was talking to another professor here who had also taught at the Air Force Academy that I got to meet. And I he told is. me, and he told me, he goes, you're going to find the students similar in many ways. And I find that to be true, partly because of the size of the school. They're similar in size. Are they really? Yeah, more or less. And also, um, the students are really inquisitive, really engaged. So I find a lot of similarities. The beauty of it here is I can just start class with prayer. I can talk about scriptures. I can integrate. And as a Christian lawyer, the, the, the greatest thing uh, of teaching here that I just love is I can integrate my two passions. I mean, my greatest passion is my love for Jesus Christ. Um, but that informs my profession and what I've done for a career. But I've never once had an opportunity to put those together in like written form or, or in a class setting. 
So it is a real joy to do that. And I hope my students see my passion for the Lord and my profession coming together. Uh, I'm sure they do. And uh, <laughs> I know our students are blessed uh, to have you in the classroom, but then I'll, I'll go back with Professor Meacham and Dr. Oliver. I mean, that, what a, what a great opportunity for, for criminal justice students. So one of my favorite movies is A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise. So when I, when I watch that movie and I think of what you did in the, in the military, how similar was your role with Tom Cruise, especially in that famous final scene in the courtroom? Wow. I, I have not cross-examined Colonel Jessup. So that part <laughs> is not true. Would but, you have done it? Um, wow. I've never, had, I've never gotten anyone to confess to what they did either on the stand. Uh, but I have tried a lot of court martials. So there are moments where uh, being in the courtroom, yeah, it, it, is, it has that feel, certainly. Uh, but most of my career obviously isn't quite like the movie. Yeah, being in the courtroom, I guess the scene, I think the scenes, there's so many lawyers that are critics of every legal movie. That couldn't happen. That yeah, would never happen. Right. But I just enjoy them for what they are, which is entertainment. And I was in the courtroom. It looks similar to that. I never were, called Colonel Jessup to the stand. But. Were, you, were, you, were your uh, courtrooms that intense? There are cases that I've prosecuted um, that have had some pretty intense moments. And then defend, I defended for two years in the Air Force. And that was really something I didn't go in wanting to do necessarily. But it was the best job I had. And the reason is because when, especially where I was a defense attorney, was at Shepard Air Force Base, Texas, the yes. training base, a lot of young airmen, and they didn't have anyone to help them in their situations. And a lot of them were crimes, we'll say, of immaturity. I defended some, you know, drug use type of things. Nothing really terribly serious. That's serious. But um, I had an opportunity to just mentor and talk to and, you know, in my private time, pray for them pray for what was going to happen at the court martial, uh, and then go into court and trust God for what was going to happen. And it was pretty amazing always to me, just the opportunity to help people that are really hurting where I was a prosecutor most of my career where you just don't, you don't meet the person personally. So I really mm. enjoyed that. Can you defend someone, you know, who, you know, is guilty? Great question. I hope my class can answer this by the end of the semester. I have to work on this one. This is, this is my greatest concern in taking the job as a defense attorney. Like, what's going to happen? Yeah. Like, am I going to get a client that did it and wants me to argue against it? So I guess having done it for a couple of years, here's what I would say. First, I get the evidence. So I look at the evidence. I, the, the prosecutor's office gives me what they have. I review the evidence. Oftentimes, the evidence is somewhat overwhelming. You know, maybe right. speaking of a drug test, we have a positive drug test. Um, and then, you know, you talk to your client and figure out, you know, where this should go. Sometimes a lot of my cases were guilty pleas. And then you're just working on maybe mitigating the sentence, making sure the person can have a life outside of the military okay. and that they don't end up with such drastic punishments like right. bad conduct discharges where they can't find work again. And they're only 19 or 20. Um, but in a case, I guess that the age old, like I did it, but I want you to argue that I didn't do it. I mean, as lawyers, we have ethical rules. And so to go in and argue that someone did not do it, that has told you they did, would have some serious ethical um, sure. concerns and, and likely would be inappropriate. Now, there are ways too long for the podcast of, of how to handle those things. But generally speaking, um, yeah, I, I don't think I thankfully ran across that in a couple okay. of years. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's something that crossed my mind when I see cases that are in the news 
and they're trying to get off on them thinking, how can they even do that? Cause it just seems so overwhelmingly that the person is guilty or, or innocent, whatever. Right. But then. So you mentioned Greg, that during one of your overseas deployments that you were assigned to review time sensitive airstrikes for legal engagement and to advise on the protection of civilian structures such as mosques and schools. Yes. Where was this deployment and what can you tell us about that project? I was deployed to um, Southwest Asia and I was um, assigned to a air operations center. And my specific duty was involved with, there's some targets that you plan, you know, they're out there and you plan ahead of time, but there's some targets that kind of, you get intelligence and you have an opportunity to hit important military targets. So when that happens, I had a small team as a lawyer, a fighter pilot or close air support, a tanker uh, expert, because you usually need tanker gas to make sure you can keep the aircraft going. And we would uh, find aircraft nearby that could go um, strike a target. It's my job to make sure the target was a military target and following all laws of armed conflict and to review that target before I made a recommendation to strike or not strike. So. When I initially thought about you as a JAG, I'm thinking you're just you're just in the courtroom, but actually you are on the front lines of ultimately saying, yes, this kind of strike can take place from a legal perspective. Giving advice to a commander with authority, and that's important in the military context. I give a lot, people say, what do you do as a lawyer? One of the, one of the main things we do in national security law is identify what authority exists and if the commander has that authority, okay. and then give advice on whether the commander can Two issues. Can you exercise that authority and should you exercise those authority? And those are both important questions. That's a lot of responsibility, isn't yes. it? Yes. You had the opportunity to fly onto and off the USS Abraham Lincoln on a C2 Greyhound. What was the experience like for you? I assume it's more exciting than me <laughs> flying out of John Glenn International Airport in Columbus or Dayton International Airport. I assume it had to be more exciting than that. Tell me about that. Yeah, so working uh, at the job we were just talking about uh, during that deployment, we, uh, when the carrier Abraham Lincoln came into theater and switched out with the previous carrier, we have uh, kind of a field trip to get to know each other because naval aircraft versus Air Force aircraft have different, you know, there's different parameters and things like that. So what an opportunity when they told me I was going to get to go to the Abraham Lincoln. I went with a few people from our center. Uh, just to to uh, get to meet with them. And it was amazing. One of the coolest things in my life. But landing on the aircraft carrier uh, was like a crash landing. Is the only way I can explain how it felt. Not, not smooth. No. <laughs> it was a slam and an abrupt stop, which is good because that means you're not going to go swimming. Right. Right, and, and that's that's when the, the plane comes and then there's something that. Yes. And so it. it was in the Persian Gulf. Uh, landed on it and got to sleep there for two nights and really appreciate what I had on the land versus sleeping in a very modest quarters on an aircraft carrier. And then um, that has got to be the loudest place on earth when they're doing uh, launching aircraft and then receiving them back. Um, it's It was amazing to see. And then, of course, I got to get launched off of the aircraft carrier uh, and you definitely want to have your seatbelt on for that. Tell me why. 
<laughs> I mean, when you look over and the guy points his finger and you kind of see him out the window and you know you're about to get launched by one of the most powerful yeah. launchers that exists and and then you just get shot off of the aircraft carrier. It's uh I mean, what a what a unique opportunity very yeah. few people get to have. So for a portion of your career, you served as the chief of military operations law, which focused on national security at the U.S. Pacific Command. So what was that experience like for a Air Force to lead? Because that's unusual, right? Yeah, I had, an, I had an unusual circumstance. I was the only Air Force lawyer in that office. Um, there are, I'm trying to think how many Navy lawyers, but um, Navy four-star commander. Uh, there, when I got there as a Navy lawyers in charge of the national security section, and it just kind of happened in my third year that my boss was comfortable with my work tribute to all the students listening work hard at your job. You never know what'll happen. Right. Um, and she put me in this, this, uh, position of great responsibility, giving advice to the command on all national security matters. And I had a Marine, um, a coastie. Uh, and a Navy Jag who worked with me to do that. And it was really important to have a good team doing that yeah. type of job at that level because the advice we gave to the commander, the commander's reporting to the Secretary of Defense in that position. How were you able to lead individuals from different branches of the government? Was it difficult? Was it seamless? How did you manage that process? Well, in this leadership circumstances, they were so skilled. And so when you work with a team that's so skilled, I mean, I think I... I learned more than them on a daily basis than anything else. So yeah. a lot of it was coordinating where we needed to be, what advice we need to give that day, what we need to review, and then issues, you know, national security. There are issues popping up that you had All no idea right. as you come in in the morning. So I just had an amazing team. So it wasn't really, of all the things, it wasn't difficult to lead. It was just more of managing how do we get everywhere to get everything done in yeah. a really good and excellent way. Angie, your wife, who was a civilian. Yes. Has, has experienced more military combat than you yes. did in your 20 years. Can you share with us that interesting story? Yes. So, and I didn't, we haven't got to the point where I, I did spend six months in Afghanistan. So I have to add that because okay, it makes ahead. this more interesting. My wife was born and raised in the Panama Canal Zone. And in 1989, the U.S. invaded Panama. The U.S. also uh, maintained five nautical miles on either side of the Panama Canal as U.S. sovereign territory at that time until 1999. But my wife was there during the invasion, and she has stories of, you know, hearing the so sounds of war all around her. We used precision-guided uh, munitions for the first time in that war, so hitting targets not far from her house. She was stranded from her parent. Well, stranded. Oh she was on the other side of the canal with a friend when the invasion occurred because even the people there didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. And so she had to be driven back. It was hard to get her back across the canal. And she said she saw buildings flattened. And um, it's just she has an amazing story. And she's seen the stress of war greater than I have, even though yeah. I've seen some of it. She's an amazing uh, person with a really neat story. Did that prepare her for being a military spouse? Yeah, I think it had a big part of me being comfortable. About when I entered the JAG Corps, um, we, had not, we had not been married long before that. And she just said, well, I've lived around all the, all the services because her dad was a Department of Defense school teacher. So he wasn't in any of the branches. But she says, the Air Force seems to have the nicest bases. So you should uh, consider that. So <laughs> that's... Okay. 
I think also she really saw the benefit of the military because in Panama, the liberation for Manuel Noriega was huge for the people there. Yeah, it um, was. And so she got to see that yeah. and, and see what, you know, in that sense, pushing back some darkness and allowing people to live in liberty is really yeah. important. Is it true that we were able to remove Manuel Noriega through rock and roll music? Yes. And I was sharing that with my students one day and they didn't all know that. And I said, well, yes, 24-7 rock and roll music outside of the Vatican. How did that, how did that, why, why did that work so successfully? Uh, I guess Just drove nuts? Probably deprived him of sleep and finally uh, he decided he didn't have many options. Wow. I don't know. I wasn't there for that. Very creative. (laughs) You're going to be uh, teaching two, two really interesting courses. One on Homeland Security. And the second one on international and domestic terrorism. How does your experience in the military help you teach the students what they need to learn on these very important topics? Well, it's just so exciting to have the opportunity to teach topics like this. When I applied for this uh, position, it was a criminal justice position. And as, as I uh, joked earlier, my wife says, did they write this just for you? So to right. come to a university that needed um, a professor or, or had courses in the area of national security is really exciting. I have a, a expertise in the area. I've had the opportunity to work um, with all kinds of issues from, uh, you know, giving advice on United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, freedom of navigation operations, air operations, um, terrorist uh, operations, I've been in Kandahar, Afghanistan. I've, I've had a lot of opportunities I think will be really interesting to the right, students. Right. And also these issues are so important um, to being a good citizen, understanding the world. Um, and many of them that are taking this course, at least the students I have in my class now, are really interested, some in law enforcement, some in military service. And they're really interested in the world around them and how that they can bring uh, godly influence into the world. And I really admire that. So it's, it's a huge privilege to get to teach it, yeah. these courses. I'm so excited that you've joined the Cedarville faculty and, and you bring this expertise to our, to our students in the classroom. How did you see the Lord care for your family during your military career? Cause I know that's important to you. Yeah, that is. Um, I would say the one reason I was able to make it 20 years and make it um, as far as I did is because of the love of my wife, Angie, um, taking care of my family, all the responsibilities that fell to her over and over again, all the moves that she had to to endure. Um, I'm just so very thankful for her in my life, uh, for her supporting me, and as well as my three boys. Um, They lived a different life. It was hard for them at times, I know, Um, but I'm really thankful for them, and I'm I'm proud of them. And it shows. And we're, we're very pleased that you have joined the Cedarville faculty. Look forward to spending more time with you as, as, as the years go by. And for any uh, prospective student listening to this podcast or a parent of a prospective student, uh, if they're interested in criminal justice, I highly recommend that you look at Cedarville's um, CJ program because, with, as I said before, Dr. Oliver, Professor Meacham, and uh, Colonel Thompson, you will be learning from the very best who have vast experiences Look at cedarville.edu for more information. But that's all the time I have. Colonel Greg Thompson, thank you for joining me this week on the Cedarville Stories Podcast. It's great to have you. I want to thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories Podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. 
You are encouraged to share, like, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.